Welcome to Rocking Your Prayers. I am your host, Dr. Alice Evans. Now, I'd like to discuss a new book, Putin Versus the People, by Green and Robertson. So, war has cost 47,000 Russian lives and plunged the economy into deep recession. Totalitarianism, meanwhile, is turbocharged. Opposition rallies, parties and independent media have all been silenced. Anti-war demonstrators were thrown in prison. Homophobia is on the increase. LGBT propaganda is now illegal. And Putin reigns supremely popular. 82% of Russians express approval, according to the Independent Levada Center. 68% believe that Russia is moving in the right direction. So, how did Russia become so warmongering, conservative and authoritarian? It wasn't like this in the 1990s and 2000s. So why has it changed? Well, in Putin versus the people, Samuel Green and Graham Robertson suggests that the annexation of Crimea triggered a groundswell of national pride. Russians rallied for the flag. They saw Putin more positively, turned a blind eye to corruption, and even became more economically optimistic. This motivated wider conformity and social policing. Seizing on geopolitical glory and newfound loyalty, Putin then tightened the screws. Midway through this tremendous book, a Russian friend remarked to me, Sam, and I quote, Sam's Russian is so good that when I first met him in Moscow in 2011, I thought I'd made a mistake and I'd approached some Russian dude, not a scholar from the US. Well, with that kind of endorsement, let's continue. So, in the early 2000s, Russia was conservative and authoritarian, but not so nationalistic. By 2004, Putin had subjugated independent television, captains of industry and political parties. Russians barely reacted, dismissing them as corrupt elites. Putin's approval ratings were high, just like the price of oil. Conservatism was also fairly strong. When pussy... Pussy riots uh, danced at the altar triggered palpable disdain. In 2012, the government gave homophobes the green light. St. Petersburg City Council imposed fines for homosexual propaganda. A similar bill was passed by the Duma. Criminals were emboldened. Gays were murdered. The goal, argued Green and Robertson, was to alienate the political opposition by tarring them as Western. You're either with us or against us. I'll add, this theme of turning people against opponents by labelling them as gay adjacent is precisely how criminals maintain social control in the gulags. You'll recall my podcast uh, from last week. Feminists were ostracised and delegitimized in a similar way, tarred as, I quote, you know, foreign-funded, Western-funded. But at this time, the Kremlin was not openly nationalistic. In the early 2010s, it preferred to maintain social cohesion. 
uh, suggest Rena Robertson. When 5,000 far-right football fans rioted, their leaders were arrested. Nationalists were on the fringe. Online groups barely mentioned Putin. They distrusted official information. Economic slowdown brewed wider xenophobia. Uh, Moscow Mayor Sobyanin, I hope I pronounced that correctly, Sobyanin, wanted to show he was tough on migrants. In 2013, he raided migrant hubs and herded them into planes, amply covered on television. Sobyanin won the election. When nationalists subsequently attacked migrants, the Kremlin stayed quiet. During this time, the government also became more authoritarian, blacklisting independent content on the internet and culling dozed, again, my pronunciation, that's an independent media from cable packages. Critical Russians became more despondent. Now, before the annexation of Crimea, only 15% of Green and Robertson's respondents expressed any pride in national leadership. After the invasion in 2014, this more than doubled to 37%. Urban cosmopolitans became just as proud as their rural compatriots. Putin's national popularity soared from the mid-60s to the mid-80s. Over 80% of Russians approved of him. Russians who watched more state television swelled up with even greater pride, trust and hope in Putin's leadership. The more they watched, the greater their pride. Russians who discussed politics more frequently with family, friends and colleagues also felt much prouder. So it wasn't just top down. The entire ecosystem was brimming. Geopolitical glory gave everything a rosy hue. Russians who became more emotionally engaged also tended to think low-level corruption was less of a problem. Bribery is something that many Russians directly and regularly experience for themselves. No objective data points to a downturn. But after Crimea, subjective perceptions changed. Russians who were highly emotionally engaged were much more economically optimistic and even viewed the past more positively. They were more likely to report that their own families had fared well in the 1990s. So notwithstanding economic stagnation and Western sanctions, 60% of Russians thought that the country was moving in the right direction. As Vasily, a 41-year-old factory worker in St. Petersburg, who voted for Putin, explained to Robertson and Green, it's a direction in which, let's say, other countries start to respect us. To respect Russia. Not like it was before when people just thought they could kick Russia around. Now, individual personalities also matter. Agreeable Russians who think of themselves as sympathetic and warm were were seven times more likely to vote for Putin and much more likely to vote for anti-gay legislation, find uh, Green, Green and Robertson. Why might this be? Well, highly agreeable people care more about the opinion of those around them 
and I quote, um, than less agreeable people. And they're strongly motivated to maintain positive relations with others. So in a context in which citizens are asked to show their loyalty to their country and to their people through their views on political issues, highly agreeable people are likely to experience strong internal pressures to accept what they are told is the patriotic, communitarian, normal position, right, Green and Robinson. So when the wider community becomes more patriotic, agreeable individuals feel stronger compunction to conform. Now, let me add two points uh, from the wider literature on agreeableness. First, this may be partly inherited, right? Uh, You know, some studies suggest that, you know, the big five personality traits, about 40% is inherited. Second, in labour markets with high unemployment, parents may instill obedience to improve their children's prospects of employment. So putting all this together, economic doldrums may reinforce social conformity. Big rallies around the flag would then have an even wider impact. Now let's turn to repression, ostracism and despondency. Thousands of Russians also protested against the war. The opposition held rallies, they protested and organised online. But Green and Robertson argue they were up against a groundswell of geopolitical glory, totalitarian repression and everyday ostracism. I quote, The social consensus makes it hard to think about alternatives. It also makes it costly to be critical. Supporting a presidential candidate other than Putin means more than bucking the Kremlin and the television. It means going against the supposed majority, contradicting friends, family, neighbours and colleagues. This is a step few are willing to take. And so the consensus goes unchallenged. This is Green and Robertson's crucial insight. Authoritarianism isn't just instilled from the top. It's also produced by proud masses. Capitalizing on post-Crimean popularity, Putin suffocated all dissent. So in 2019, Moscow's electoral officials refused to register opposition candidates. Police in riot gear charged into protesters. 1,400 people were detained. 150 were punished with fines or prison terms. When the opposition leader Navalny was arrested, 120,000 people protested in Russia. The next day, 4,000 were arrested. In 2021, uh, Volkov and other opposition leaders called off further protests. Navalny's campaign group was declared an extremist organization and any kind of association risked imprisonment. Independent media outlets lost ad revenue. Censors blocked opposition websites. For Green and Robertson, and I quote, the last pretenses of Russian democracy died. Now I quote Volkov, who is the chairman of Navalny's uh, anti-corruption foundation. He says, our biggest enemy is the lack of belief that something can be changed. That is undoubtedly our biggest problem. People have this really deep-seated sense that nothing at all can be changed. That, That is truly our biggest problem. So even if privately critical, despondent dissidents are reluctant to demonstrate. Sociologist uh, Anna Kuleshova simply finds they're losing hope. And that echoes my own comparative research. In times and places where dissent is repeatedly crushed, people become forlorn. 
rather than invest in risky mobilization, they just endure. But then no one ever sees successful activism and the vicious cycle repeats. So in my own work, I call this a a despondency trap. So by the time Russia invaded Ukraine, the honeymoon was over. Genuine enthusiasm, maintained Green and Robertson, has been replaced with disenchanted apathy and violent coercion. In 2022, the Duma blocked Facebook, Twitter and independent media. Rectors of 180 Russian universities pledged support for the war. 15,000 protesters were arrested in the first month of the war. Some have been tortured. Citizens are also snitching, reports uh, Polina Ivanova. According to the state censor, uh, Roskomnadzo, Roskomnadzo, oh, again, I'm sorry. Um, almost 300,000 reports were submitted by citizens last year primarily concerning, and I quote, illegal information posted on the internet, including fakes about the special military operation in Ukraine. So that's consistent with wider research on how existential threats motivate cultural tightness and social policing. Now, dissent is still expressed, but much more cautiously, such as by defacing banknotes and plasticine figurines, which you can see on my substack. So now here's a big question. How popular is Putin? Under authoritarianism, it's very difficult to know what people really think. That's why so few predicted the fall of the USSR, right? Keeping quiet ensures one's survival amid violent repression. Now, writing this year in 2023, Sam Green now insists that most Russians are far more anxious and uncertain. The vast majority doubts state media. Independent polling indicates growing skepticism. Now, I don't profess any expertise on this topic. I've never been to Russia. But to me, this reading of the available evidence seems inconsistent. So... Green and Robertson's own 2014 survey suggests a popularity boom post-Crimea. And that tracks nationally representative data by independent agencies. Today, Green and Robertson maintain that popularity, that genuine loyalty, has been replaced with apathy. But what I don't get. If we look at Putin's approval ratings, we see they're just as high in 2023 as 2017. 82% now express approval. Other independent polls suggest 68% of Russians think the country is moving in the right direction. So maybe this is all preference falsification. But since Green and Robertson accepted the reliability of popularity polls in 2014 and 2017, I don't know why they now deny that same data, indicating an upturn. So that was one part of the book uh, that left me agnostic. They, they read the same data differently at different times. What do I know? Now, here's a question that I must ask. How has militarism affected patriarchy? So a group of Russian men 
quoted by Green and Robertson, were chatting about Ukraine, seizing it by force. And they, they laughed about the parallels with rape. So let me quote. There is no Ukraine, Igor replies. There is no war between Russia and Ukraine. There is a war between Russia and the US. And the Ukrainians are just pieces of meat. Oh, come on said Mikhail. Ukraine has a right to be independent, has a right to join the European Union. No. Any country for which even a drop of Russian blood has spilled should be part of Russia. But what if it doesn't want to be with us? You know, Misha, it's like with the women. Not all the women... Oh, yes, so wait, so I should refer. You know, Misha, it's like with women. Not all the women we slept with wanted to sleep with us. But we were men and convinced them otherwise. The men... And there were only men around the table. Laugh loudly. <laughs> what you're talking about, said Mikhail through the laughter, sounds more like rape. And that anecdote is consistent with a wider body of evidence. Violence, criminality, militarism and authoritarianism all seem to perpetuate acceptance of sexual violence and repression of feminist dissent. New work by Mayana Balazina and Sofia Zarakova finds that Russians who champion right-wing authoritarianism tend to endorse rape myths and blame victims. Likewise in Latin America, men who endorse vigilantism and private gun ownership also feel more entitled to beat their wives. Beyond violence, people who prioritize national defense tend to prefer male leaders. The cult of war and the cult of strong men may encourage these masculine ideals, uh, suggests Inna Perintupa. Perintupa? I wish I knew all these names. Let's say Inna Perintupa. In her new book. It's a new book. It's a great new book. uh, Feminist Politics in Neoconservative Russia. Mainstream society celebrates men as, and I quote, defenders of the fatherland. The normalization of macho aggression may encourage sexual violence. And let me quote uh, a woman she she, she interviews uh, called Milka, a rape survivor. All the women I told about it, and even all the men to whom I mentioned it, then started reminiscing about how their friends had experienced something similar. The Russian police are typically dismissive, and there's lots of data by Human Rights Watch on this. I recommend their 2018 report. Back in 2017, the Duma actually decriminalized battery, sustaining a culture of impunity. And now feminists are too scared to protest. Uh, let me quote Vera. Uh, this is from uh, in Inna's book. We are also facing a crisis in activism because the ways in which we can express ourselves, the number of activities we can do, is very limited. And Marina adds, eight years ago, we could go out onto the street and do a political performance. We cannot permit ourselves that anymore, she says. Okay, so let me summarize. Sam Green and Graham Robertson suggest that the 2014 invasion of Crimea enabled a groundswell of patriotism, pride and economic optimism. As Russians rallied around the flag, Putin became more coercive and then locked in totalitarian control. So it's a story of co-evolution between both Putin and the people. I strongly recommend it. Thank you very much for listening. 
I'm Dr. Alice Evans. Oh, and heads up, in two days' time, I will be doing a podcast with Professor Lynette Ong on her wonderful new book on repression in China, which will also be for my birthday, because who doesn't like a little bit of violent repression on their birthday? Anyway, take care, and I hope you're all well.